Meeting developing Asia and the Pacific's demand for quality infrastructure that can support inclusive post-pandemic growth will require the steady but equitable acquisition of land. However, geography, settlement patterns, conflicting cultures, and unique country-level land use problems often raise concerns about the fairness of land procurement and undermine project viability. In this podcast, Professor of Property Piyush Tiwari of the University of Melbourne examines land development challenges and the importance of balancing the rights and interests of vulnerable communities with broader infrastructure imperatives. He also describes policy recommendations for strengthening equitable land use management practices and infrastructure financing in the region. The discussion draws upon the new book, Equitable Land Use for Asian Infrastructure, which he co-edited. Professor Tiwari, thank you for joining Asia's Developing Future. Can you start by explaining some common hurdles to obtaining land rights for infrastructure development in Asia and the Pacific? Land is a necessary input in any infrastructure project. As we all know, that infra infra projects require large and contiguous land parcels. which have been procured in a time-bound manner. The scale economies associated with infrastructure provisioning makes it difficult for competitive market to provide many of these services and lead to market failure. As we have seen from time to time, privately held land is required for public purposes. One of them is infrastructure development. In many countries that favor private property rights, procuring land for public infrastructure through a market process is challenging. The functioning of land market is constrained due to a number of reasons, like, for example, infrequent transactions, information asymmetrics, and a huge investment that is required to buy land. The situation is further complicated in the case of land for infrastructure, as on the buy side, there is a buyer who is pretty large, who has enormous powers, like, for example, the state or state entities or its organization but on the sell side there are numerous land owners who exercise different degree of power and sophistication in the land market depending on their size of land holding these challenges get further complicated in asia pacific as in many countries land holding per household is small dependency on land for subsistence is high property rights are often convoluted and the connection to land go beyond the economic utility all these put together form a significant hurdle in obtaining land rights for infrastructure development in asia and the pacific what are the potential impacts of disputed land use on the region's vulnerable communities the impact varies across regions and countries So we have different experiences, different impacts, and many Pacific island nations, for example, most of the land is held as customary land tenure, and government in these countries have set up regulation to enable leasing of these land to third parties. What this has done is this has benefited the third parties and the national economies, but has caused disruption and sometimes displacement of indigenous peoples. On the other hand, in Southeast Asia, there has been a long history of government limiting land rights for local people, often to the benefit of large landowners or the foreign investors. There is an ongoing significant land conflict between indigenous people and developers. Developers who wish to extract resources, develop agribusiness opportunities, and develop infrastructure. structure projects but indigenous people are far more concerned about their rights and their connection to land which will get disrupted because of these activities indigenous people have attachment and dependence on land that generate deeper often spiritual interest and rights that distinguishes from what we understand as property rights and often defy placing a monetary value as compensation 
There have been recent development in international law and social and environmental safeguard policies of international financial institutions that have tried to strengthen the rights of indigenous people. To some extent, these have been successful in lessening the harm of development projects on indigenous people and maximize development benefits accruing to them. These would need to be further promoted. What are some keys to making land development more equitable? Over the years, the process of compulsory acquisition has evolved to better compensate affected landowners, either through payment of additional monetary compensation or solatium. In recent amendments to land acquisition acts in India, for example, there is an acknowledgement that fair compensation extends beyond the market value of land. So there is an argument that strong property rights can facilitate better land development. However, title and private property ownership do not necessarily guarantee security of tenure and well-being of urban poor citizens. We need to consider social and political dimensions, such as power inequality that exist in the society, the land administration systems, because these can make urban poor vulnerable to state and market-driven displacement. So while land titling is important, but this is not the end. The other important thing, other key aspect to make land development equitable would be to consider the issues of governance and financial complexities that hinder infrastructure development. And one has to seek approaches that go beyond the formal approaches. In case of China, for example, there are two innovative but informal local transit-oriented development land money management policies that have been successfully introduced. One is rail plus property strategy in Shenzhen, and the other one is land reserve strategy in Wuhan. Now, these policies are not part of formal regulation, but have been effective in delivering infrastructure. So we have to go beyond what formal legal processes would suggest and look for ways in which while the infrastructure development could take place, but it also protects those who are affected through either land acquisition or benefit through the societal benefit of these projects. Can you describe any equitable land use measures that have been successfully implemented in Asia and the Pacific? There are a few that I would like to describe here. The first is land readjustment. What land readjustment does, it pulls together land of various landowners, which could be of different sizes, different shapes, into a large land parcel. And then a portion of that assembled land is set aside for infrastructure development. And the rest of the land, whose value would improve due to the infrastructure, is distributed to the original landowners in proportion of their original lands. This allows landowners to benefit from increase in land value that occur due to infrastructure development. And it also minimizes the conflict. The experience of continuously implementing many land readjustment projects in Japan has made the Japanese land readjustment system far more mature in terms of approval process, land replotting techniques, financing, and contributing to quicker and smoother implementation. Many other countries, like, for example, India, have also used land pooling as one of the mechanisms to develop infrastructure. Some of these could be used in other countries. The other example is a land trust method, which was actively promoted by former dean of Asian Development Bank Institute, Professor Yoshino. Now, what land trust model does is that it creates a trust or a land trust. So landowners sell their land to land trust, who on their behalf develops this land. Now, land owners, original land owners, have a stake in the development and also have a stake in the profits that the trust generates on their behalf. 
So it gives, in some sense, a stake for the original landowners in the project that is being developed. So Japan has used it to develop real estate in Tokyo quite successfully. The model is being also looked at in other countries. A new bill on trust for private asset management, which will allow creation of a trust for private asset management, has been approved by Thai cabinet in 2018. The bill is under enactment process to become enforceable law in the near future. So the trust model could be an interesting one to look at in many of the Asia-Pacific countries. Now, to overcome the challenges that are associated with land use management strategies, project implementing agencies in some countries and multilateral institutions have developed safeguard policy statements as their operational policies. The idea is to avoid, minimize, or mitigate adverse environmental and social impact and protect rights of those likely to be affected or marginalized by the development process. These policies, to some extent, aim to bridge the gap that existing land use management strategies were supposed to have been filling, but haven't been able to do so. Now, in case of road projects in Sri Lanka, for example, safeguard policies have resulted in better outcome for affected persons in terms of restoration of their income sources and increased income significantly. So these are some of the strategies that one should look at while implementing infrastructure development in an equitable way. What are some suggested next steps for harmonizing social protection and infrastructure growth in the region? In our book, we suggested 10 steps that would be necessary to harmonize social protection and infrastructure growth. Now, the first one is do not harm and make original owner first beneficiary of project design. It's very important that the original landowners are part of any project that is developed. The second to understand local communities, their expectation, and engage with them. Work through expert mediators. The third, offer a menu of possible land use models that have worked elsewhere. And in that regard, our book presents a number of different models in different countries. This could be considered by sponsors, host governments, financiers, or local communities. Adapt to the local context, and the model which would work better should be the one that could be pursued. Fourth, engage in extensive impact and feasibility studies with multiple public consultation stages and checkpoints. Fifth, know when to hold back and shelve something that might be better to take it on sometime later. Sixth, bring trusted independent quality surveyors and completion guarantors at all levels of the project. Seven, Involve social workers and relocation specialists to follow medium and long-term impact on affected people to ensure they receive as many of the promised benefits and livelihood improvements as possible. Now, this is important because those who have lost land or have been relocated are in the most vulnerable situation. And their well-being and restoration of their well-being is paramount concern in any development process. Number eight, rearrange relocation packages and benefits for affected people or their descendants. Nine, honestly admit to the fundamental changes of circumstances or miscalculation that retard project process. Number 10, establish trusted avenues to meaningful complaint and to hold sponsors, governments, and financiers accountable for broken promises or missed benefits. This has been Asia's Developing Future, brought to you by the Asian Development Bank Institute in Tokyo. See the show notes for the transcript and related material. For more information about us, 
please visit adbi.org.